Nope. Nope. Come on. Nope. Dan, just come on nope. out. We need to start. Nope. Come on. Nope. You know what's going to happen if we start. <sighs> There's no ghost, Dan. Maureen, there is always a ghost. Every debate now, we've been visited by a ghost, and each one has been more horrible than the last. And so you know what? No. I don't need another ghost. I didn't even want that last debate. I hate all of this. No. Uh, Maureen, do you? Sorry. Yep. Sorry. That's my door. Your door? That's yep. your door. Sorry. I just, I just got to go answer it. I'll be right back. Hello? Oh, hello. Uh, I'm the ghost of the third debate. Do you mind if I come in? Uh, I like to use the door. I know it's not as cool as stretching out of the wall or crawling out of the TV, but I think what we're missing these days is good old-fashioned manners. Uh, sh- okay, sure. Sure, just come in. Much obliged. You don't seem like a ghost. Oh, yes, I get that a lot. Uh, all right, well, uh, D- Dan... Dan, the ghost is here. God, I knew it. Don't let it in. Hi, Dan. Pleasure to meet you. Would you, uh, would you like a cup of coffee? Oh, gosh, that'd be lovely. Thanks. Just milk, please. Oh, coming up. Dan. Oh, I hope we're not getting off on the wrong foot. I didn't even tell you my name. I'm Doug, the ghost of future debates. Doug? You're, you're a ghost named Doug. And as you can see, I'm completely reasonable. Uh, here you go, Doug. Oh, gosh, thanks a lot. I had a long night last night, so this coffee is going to hit the spot. Bet you guys had a long night, too. Oh, man, we really did. Dan? Dan? Dan, come on. Come on. There's nothing... Dan, there's nothing scary about Doug. I can make the sound if you want. There, I know. It's ridiculous. All the other ghosts make such a big production number out of it. The last thing I want to do is make you uncomfortable, Dan. Well, thank you, Doug. I have a job to do, just like anyone else. But I like to do mine with as much consideration as I can. Dan, Dan, be polite. Thank you, Doug. No, no, not a problem, not a problem. Gosh, I hate to be a pain, but did I see some pie in there? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, we always have pie. I'll, I'll just, I'll go get you a piece. Morning, I wanted that pie. Gosh, darn it! I come in here and take your coffee and pie. What must you think of me? Well, it's not a problem, Doug. I'll, I'll just go get you some. You just, you just talk don't, to Dan. Don't leave me alone with this thing. Nice little lady. So, Dan, did you enjoy last night? Enjoy. Wasn't it a pip? Best one yet. Everything is fine now. Wait, everything is... Fine, yes. That's what I came to say. This coffee is delicious, by the way. Everything is just fine now. How was this? That debate. Everything that came before it. This entire election. How was any of it? Fine. I'm not sure I know what you mean, Dan. It seemed perfectly normal to me. This is just what normal is, Dan. This is how things are now. Nice and normal. Sure, it may be different from your old normal, but normal changes all the time. Welcome to your new normal. Oh my god. This is how it happens. That's right. See, all you have to do is pretend everything is as it should be. That this election has contained actual discourse. That everyone speaking on television is equally qualified. That there are two sides to every story. That what he says and what she says are of equal weight. Well, maybe what he says counts a little more. If you just go along to get along, then hot dog, everything is normal. No, we can't let this happen. Look around. It's already happened, Dan. 
Relax. I reject ye, O oh ghost. I reject this fake new normal. Oh, come now, Dan. I mean, we're just two guys talking here, right? Let's get locker roomy. Women are forgetting pie and coffee, right? Also, they smell funny. Have you noticed that? They don't smell like death like we do. What? Oh, and when they talk, whatever they say, you can't believe what they're saying, right, Dan? They're not like us. My God, you're not nice at all. You may sound nice, but you are a monstrous retrograde freak just like every other one of these ghosts. No, Dan. I am the future. Oh, and I think I smell my pie. Here you go, Doug. Hey, thanks, toots. That looks... Knock, knock, mother That's not pie. Oh, no, it is not. What? You think you can stop me? Women can't catch ghosts. I'm a nasty woman, ghost. Watch me. (laughs) Maureen, that was amazing. You did it. Wait, what is that thing? It's mostly a vacuum cleaner with a little something of my own design. Dan. Did you think I was just going to let a ghost in here? Foiled by a woman. I'll be back. Oh, yeah? Says who? Welcome to Says Who, the podcast that isn't a podcast. It's a coping strategy. I'm Maureen Johnson. And I'm Dan Sinker. And Maureen, Maureen, we did it. We made it through three debates. There were so many moments last night, Maureen, that I thought I was not going to make it. But thankfully, my wife and kid had made this amazing pie. And so every time I just cut a slice and I'd plow right through. Honestly, I'm still on a bit of a sugar rush here. The room is just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Do you have any other coping strategies aside from eating pie? There are a lot of different kinds of pie, Maureen. I know, but we're here to help people deal with this election, and we have to offer something more than eat lots of pie, because that's not healthy. Yeah, but Maureen, I think we get to celebrate a little bit because there are no more debates. Do you know how amazing that is? No debates! There were 12 Republican primary debates, Maureen, and nine Democratic ones. There was one vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and some other guy and three never ending presidential ones. And we have gotten through all of them. Twenty five debates, Maureen. And now they're none. Listen, do you hear that? Do I hear what? That's the sound of no debates. I'm pretty sure what I just heard was the sound of a cricket sound effect. Yeah, but it was a cricket sound effect of no debates, Maureen. Yeah, it's true. But it, it definitely feels good to know that there are no debates left. But we, we held this episode till Friday so we could cover this debate. And personally, before the debate, I prepared very heavily to be ready for it. I did everything I could to make sure I was calm, I was an open frame of mind. I took a walk. I made sure to eat healthy. I took a bracing cold shower. I put on nice soft pajamas. I lit an autumn scented candle. Wait, people people actually live like that? Yeah, but I mean, I spent the rest of the night sitting on the kitchen trash can in the dark eating what I think was ice cream. Whatever it was had been in the freezer for a while, so it was either ice cream or frozen soup. Yeah, that sounds more like last night. But it was okay because I was ready for it. I expected it. I mean, as usual... 
Trump made it through the beginning without losing his grip. He made it to that 22nd or 25th minute before the train just went off the rails. But up until that time, he was very, very calm. He looked like I did the time I was given a Vicodin before a really terrible root canal. And I sat in the middle of the living room floor for about three hours, and I kept pointing at everyone in the room and saying, you're Phil Collins. And then I passed out, and I had to be revived with cheese. Wait, revived with? Cheese. And I'm not allowed to take Vicodin again. But the face he had, that's what I think I looked like then. It was a very flat aspect. And those sniffs were in control for a while. His sniff coach did a really good job. But then they came back again around that 30-minute mark. I love that somehow the fact that he held it together for 30 minutes of a 90-minute debate is being held up as like, well, he had a pretty good debate for a while there. Like, I am the father of children. And basically, that's what you say when you try to go out for dinner and you get your order in and they bring out the breadsticks and pretty much right then the kid completely melts down and right there in the middle of Olive Garden, you just have to drag them out and hold on to whatever little bit of dignity you have left. And, like, later on in the night, you say to your partner, you say, well, you know, at least we got breadsticks, and the the breadsticks were pretty good, right? And, like, that first 30 sniff-free minutes of the debate, that was breadsticks. And then there were no more breadsticks. But here's the thing. These debates, they feel like car crashes or weird acts of nature, but there's nothing accidental about what we're seeing. You could maybe say that the first two debates were like more careening, but this one, this one, Trump was as prepared as he will ever be. It was absolutely clear that some kind of coaching had gone on, but Hillary Clinton was even more prepared and she set him up over and over and he started down the slide as predictably and disastrously as that water slide I told you about before, the enclosed one with the loop at the end at that amusement park near where I grew up where all of the people died. No one tested that slide. No one checked the basic physics of it. They just set it up and people slid down and they hit that loop and they were shot up into the top of the loop and they smashed into it and they broke their noses or they were knocked out and then they were dropped bleeding and or unconscious into a cold pool of water and none of it was an accident because someone built that slide in fact i think i need to put up a picture of that slide in the show notes so that everyone can see it in all of its glory seriously it was definitely not an accident you kind of got the sense that maybe he figured it out when it was over he just stood there at the podium like ripping up his notes you know, the whole thing really started with that whole Putin and the puppet thing. No, you're the puppet. No, I'm no puppet, Maureen. You are the puppet. And we're back in third grade. We had a presidential debate which had a candidate doing an actual, no, you. Well, I mean, Clinton did spend the entire debate up-dogging him. What's up-dog? Oh, I see. Yeah, see? Felt like every answer she gave was peppered with these little bits of bait for him, and without fail, he bit on every one. Well, I mean, he does have like three mouths, so that makes sense. Wait, three three mouths? No, he. I think he just has that one. Oh, no, no. It's just the eyes, because when he squints them, they're like two little tiny mouths. It's like the Corinthian in the Sandman comic. Just three mouths staring back at you. Ah, oh, good God. That is a nightmare image that I may never escape. Let's just get to our guest.
So, Maureen, I woke up today with this weird combination of relief and dread. On the one side, we are finally through the debates, but on the other, what the hell comes next? I mean, obviously, Election Day itself is rapidly approaching, but... The space between now and then? Yeah, it feels like someone took all of the maps for how we get from here to there and put them on the box and set fire to the box. And then they set fire to the room the box was in and then set fire to that house. And there's just a lot of fire. I once had a lighter set itself on fire and I put it out by dropping it into a stock pot and then popping the lid on it. But I am definitely not prepared for this much fire. Which is why, as always, we bring someone that understands all this a hell of a lot better than we do to join us and help make sense out of it. Molly Ball is a staff writer for The Atlantic, where she is a leading voice in the magazine's coverage of U.S. politics. The winner of multiple awards for her political coverage, Molly also appears regularly as an analyst on NBC's Meet the Press, CBS's Face the Nation, PBS's Washington Week. Molly, thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start with the question we ask all of our guests in the hope of achieving enlightenment. What the hell is going on? Do you know? Uh, like the human condition? Uh, no, I am no, not just, equipped just, to explain that. Uh, the can... election is almost over. The end is in sight. And I know that there is some question about whether that's actually the case. Uh, but I am clinging to the belief that uh, this is a real deadline, election day. And uh, for me, having been covering this saga for a year and a half, I I live for this. This is like the best part of my life every four years when the entire country is finally interested in the nerdy little thing that I do all the time. Um, But, you know, this is not a normal election, but it is certainly an interesting one, an interesting time to be alive, an interesting time to be a political reporter. So I just try to be grateful that I get to go all over the country experiencing it firsthand. You definitely sound more upbeat than anyone we've talked to, (laughs) which is nice. Well, I try I try not to let it get to me. And I also I achieved a state of inner peace recently where I just sort of let go. I think there's been so much fascination and texture to this election that I I, I was clinging to this anxiety about just trying to scramble all over the place and see everything and take it all in before it was all over and didn't think that I could. And then a few days ago, before the last debate, I just let go. I just thought, okay, I'm ready. Just, you know, sort of a Jesus take the wheel moment, I guess. Just like, I, I, can, I can do this. I can, I can make it to the end. And, I've, and even though I'm like not sleeping or eating regularly and I never know what time zone I'm in, I, I just feel fine now. Wow, that's so beautiful. I am speechless right now. Uh, am how... I the only happy person in America? Yes. Besides maybe Hillary Clinton? Yes, maybe. <laughs> I know, Trump might be. It's, his feelings are largely unclear to us. That's true. He's pretty impenetrable. It's, it's funny, you know, I've thought so much about Donald Trump's mental state, but I've never asked myself whether he's happy. Oh, I, I think that answer is a resounding no. Right? Like, I mean... He, I don't know. I, th- I think he might be. He, see- he seems like a deeply fulfilled human being on some level. Like, if, if what you want is attention. Yeah. I mean, so... So, having... You just got back from the, the third debate. And having now everyone suffered through nearly five hours of those debates. And, and while you have managed to find some inner peace in, in all of this... It feels like we've all kind of collectively suffered through a, a great deal of misery. And where did this debate misery get us? Here we are now at the end of three. 
where are we? I think we learned a lot from these debates, actually. And and I think, you know, the it, it's interesting how consistent both candidates were, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton was prepared to a fault and, and uh, poised and aggressive uh, the entire time. And Trump made the same mistakes over and over again, mostly having to do with his temperament. He just is incapable of, of really focusing for a sustained amount of time and uh, incapable of, you know, declining to take the bait most of the time and uh, has a lot of personal issues that uh, he is not able to account for. And, 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 and in all three debates, I think that fundamental contrast came through and, um, you know, it has been a whirlwind the past few weeks, and it's hard to extricate the effect of the debates from the effect of everything else that's been hitting, particularly the scandals. Um, but the combination of those things means that this race is in a place that's almost impossible, I think, for, for Trump to pull out. And um, most people that I know, the sort of political professionals, both Democrat and Republican, are really only thinking now about what, what the margin is going to be and how far down the ballot those effects are going to go. What do you think, just of all the moments that you've seen in, in this last night's debate, everybody's hanging on this, I'll keep you in suspense thing. Right. And about the, what did you make of that? So here's the frame that I've come to in understanding the, because ever since he announced his campaign, it has been one outrage after another from Trump. And it, what he really is, is a really good troll. He loves to get a rise out of people. He's really good at it. And we fall for it every single time. Um, and so, and, and I don't really fault us. Like, it is important that for people to get outraged by things like, you know, the potential undermining of democracy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's, it's as if you took the sort of mindset of an internet troll and transposed it on the unwritten rules of politics, and they're just fundamentally incompatible. So, you know, do I think that he, I, I think, I think most things that Trump says and does can be taken completely at face value. I think he literally just meant like, stay tuned for the exciting last episode of this reality show called Election 2016. I don't think it had... Like, I don't think it was part of a larger belief system about authoritarianism. It's just who he is and how he thinks. And in his mind, he's a winner. And so, you know, it's the same as with the Judge Curiel case. If it is not, it was not possible for him to lose that case. So if he, if he got an outcome that was unfavorable, it had to be because the other person was wrong. It had to be because the judge was wrong, the law was wrong, the system was wrong. And that's just fundamentally how he sees the world. The other thing I thought was interesting was in the post-debate spin, I think it was both Don Jr. and Eric started making this new argument that, like, actually being president would be a step down for yeah. Donald Trump in his career. Um, so that signifies that they've actually moved on to the next step, which is sour grapes, right? I never wanted it anyway. I, I, I didn't want to be president. I have more important things to do. So that signifies a greater level of acceptance, potentially. So, I mean, I I think you're exactly right, right? Like, I mean, he is at, at the end of the day, he is a, a carnival barker and and a troll. But the the thing that he might understand that he's kind of, you know, talking about the 
season finale cliffhanger, right? But it sure seems like there are plenty of people that that back him that believe it, right? And so now it feels like we have this dichotomy between kind of what he's saying, which he believes, but I don't think he believes it at the depth and level that that you know the various supporters that have been you know interviewed over the last week talking about coups and revolutions and things like that. And at what point does that chicken come home to roost? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't. I really don't know. I've been to a lot of Trump rallies. I've talked to hundreds of Trump supporters, and uh, you will always be able to find a disturbing number of people who voice sentiments like. Uh, like the ones you're talking about. Um, But of course, that is a tiny fringe of the overall electorate. Um, Even of the people voting for Trump, that's a tiny fringe. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I hope that the authorities are taking any actual threats seriously, but it's really up to Trump as the leader of this movement, whether he makes some kind of sustained effort to mobilize them uh, for something after election day. And that's hard for me to imagine just because he doesn't exert sustained focus toward really anything, including his presidential campaign. So, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm trying to be sort of skeptical of the hype and the freak out at the same time as I do take seriously the potential. And, and, you know, the sort of larger storyline is what becomes of the movement that Trump is leading, the, the the strain of thinking that he represents, the number of, of people who have gotten stirred up to follow him, what does that mean, not just for the Republican Party, but for sort of society as a whole, given how divisive this has all been? And that I have no idea. You know, the question, it, it feels like this presidential campaign was, we we lifted up a rock and a bunch of creepy things crawled out from under it. And the question is, are we better off knowing that that's what was under the rock? Mm. I don't know. I mean, were we happier when we didn't know? Maybe. But were we fundamentally in denial? And and maybe all those questions are irrelevant anyway, since you can't put the rock back. No, it does feel like we're walking into a fog completely made out of question marks, sort of, after right after this election is over. One kind of unrelated but question I, I also like to ask is, so if we assume that Kellyanne Conway and Mike Pence both have bags full of wigs, cash, and passports, and <laughs> means to get out of Trump Tower, who leaves first or does anyone leave? <laughs> it's just a thought experiment I like to do. Oh, that's hilarious. There's going to be so much great speculative fiction written about the inside, <laughs> what happened on the inside of the Trump campaign. Um, but I'm sure the very best and most unbelievable version will be the true one. Um, I don't know what anybody's plans are. And, and you know, I am friends with a lot of sort of uh, told you so, never Trump type Republicans. And what they saw from the beginning was, you know, the, the, the Republicans who got on board with Trump thought they were taking the easy way out. And all they would have to do is sort of lie back and think of England and soon it would all be over. Um, and what they didn't realize was that that was actually the hard way because they were going to be implicated in this thing and they were going to have to answer for everything. And he was going to torture them, right? Chris Christie didn't realize that he couldn't just ride around on the plane. Trump was going to first humiliate and ridicule him and make fun of his weight the whole time. 
and then sort of put him through the ringer of having to to answer for all these these things and then and and then Christy might go to jail in his own right so it's been a tough year for Chris Christie um I'm not sure how much pity to have for any of these people though they they made their bargain you know and 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 so the way there's been a lot of talk about like, is there some post-election reckoning for the Republican Party and do the Republicans who supported Trump all get sort of hauled into some kind of star chamber or kangaroo court and, <laughs> and excommunicated. Um, I have trouble seeing how that happens just because if there's anything we've learned, it's how disorganized <laughs> this party is and how weak its institutions are. So I wouldn't be too surprised if they just sort of stumble along for the next two and a half years and then another presidential campaign starts. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's one thing that I'm really curious about, which is, you know, I mean, his his campaign has been a shambles from the start, right? And people have hopped on and people have hopped off and there are scandals every, you know, three seconds. And, and how has he been so resilient through this? Well... On the one hand, he hasn't been that resilient, given that he's probably going to lose. True. (laughs) But he did win the Republican primary. Um, And I wrote a long piece in the October issue of our magazine calling attention to the sort of uh, political consulting angle on all this, which is that, you know, in a world where Jeb Bush can spend $130 million and get literally four delegates... And Trump can spend almost nothing and have nothing resembling a traditional campaign or anybody with experience running a presidential campaign and win the whole thing. It's really a sort of emperor has no clothes moment for for these political consultants who are who are getting rich off of donors and off of all the money sloshing around in the political system. So that may be a slightly... Um, nerdier point uh, about like you know what 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 will the political scientists conclude from this sort of grand controlled experiment in how many votes you could get if you really did not run a campaign at all as a major party nominee um but but i think that aspect of it is really interesting because there is a lot of political consulting that i have concluded is is just sort of a scam and i'm not sure how much of, you know, Hillary Clinton has nearly a thousand people on the payroll. Uh, and I'm glad that young people are getting jobs. But <laughs> but are any of those people, how many of those people are having any kind of effect on the outcome? I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, somebody running one of or partly running one of Trump's campaign offices in, in Colorado is 12. So... <laughs> I think that that's, I think, my favorite fact of the whole campaign. I just it's love it. Great. And I think that's, I write for young adults, and I sort of love that. I love that, for good or for ill, there is a 12-year-old out there running a campaign office, and I think that's great. Right. And I think it actually gives a pretty interesting message to kids, because I talk to a lot of kids who can't vote in this election, and they're super frustrated and freaked out. And they constantly ask, what can we do? You know, what can we do? And it's, I, you know, I try to advise them, you know, get out and help people register to vote, help get people to polls. I'll, that's super important. But do you have any kind of messages for uh, people that haven't seen 
presidential debate uh, elections before, and this is sort of their first experience? Because <laughs> that's that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think so my son is seven, um, and he's kind of a nervy kid, but he has not shown any signs of like election related anxiety. Uh, and and I wonder how much of the anxiety is coming from the adults, right? I think maybe we as adults need to dial down the extent to which we're freaking out so we don't send a message to our kids that elections are a source of mental illness. Um, so, but, um, but beyond that, I'm not sure. I mean, kids grow up and they, they, they learn that there's, there's more to life than just one, a sample size of one for any given experience. Uh, but, is this going to have some kind of imprinting on 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 their little brains so that they're like they permanently that permanently shapes their expectations? That would be pretty wild. I would not know. I, I, so, I, I would not know what to expect if that were the case. Yeah. So my son was seven in the last election and is eleven now and is totally locked in. Right. Like just this is the first election that he's really paying attention to everything. He watched every debate that we did leave halfway through the second one because he was just so annoyed and grossed out by it. But, um, you know, it it. I have had multiple conversations with him saying, you know, this is not the way it normally goes. Right. But there are plenty of people to whom this is kind of now what they think this is. Right. And and between the, you know, the kind of war that he is waging with the Republican Party and the fact that, you know, in four years, you've got a whole nother crop of people that that came up, you know, it, as young adults seeing this as as reality, like. Have you given any thought to kind of what the real lasting ramifications of this insane campaign might be? Um, I've given a lot of thought to the political ramifications and, and yeah, the sort of larger sociocultural representation uh, uh, ramifications. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the sort of generational aspect of it, too. Right. I mean, so much of the Trump movement is the sort of dying roar of a bygone America. So much of it is old white people who grew up in the 1950s and uh, have realized on some level that they're not America anymore, right? The American mainstream has moved away from what it was in that day and nobody likes change or it's hard to accept. It's discombobulating. And, um, and so, but, but, but on some level, like just demographically, the vision of, America as a sort of white Christian majority country is is just in the past. And uh, so I think that is something that's going to play out in our politics for many years to come. And, you know, I don't know how the Republican Party finds a way to reconcile itself with that fact. There are a lot of well-meaning Republicans who would really like it to, but they also have to grapple with their base and with the fact that, you know, when, when their base was asked to choose between Donald Trump and Paul Ryan last week or the week before, they chose Trump, right? There was a very clear standoff between yeah. these two men and the base said, screw you, Paul Ryan. 
we want Trump. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they do with that. And I, and I also, this is not just about the future of the Republican party. It's about, I think, I think my whole framework for understanding politics changed in this election cycle because this was not an election about policy or about issues. It was not the sort of lofty battle of ideas that I sort of naively thought presidential campaigns were. It was a battle of identities. And I don't know how you go forward in a country where everyone is voting tribally like that. Um, and it's just a, and it's just a bunch of different tribes sort of fighting for the, the spoils. Um, I don't know. I don't know where that leads. So there's, so there's a lot of questions that there, I didn't answer the question about ramifications because I don't know where it's going, but, but it's definitely, I think, I, I don't think there's any going back. I don't think four years from now we get like the 2012 campaign again and just pretend, just pretend 2016 never happened. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that uh, so many, I, you know, I have lots of various trolls on Twitter that talk to me and, or don't just talk to me or say all kinds of things to me. And they present Trump as change, but then it, everything is, it's all very retrograde. It's like, oh, well, we're going to go back. That's change. We're going to stay the same. That's change. It's all of these conflicting ideas that they can kind of hold in their head at the same time. Like, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss kind of thing. Um, it's a, it, they definitely want to believe. Like, they're clicking their heels together. It's a desperate kind of belief. And I spend a lot of time wondering... Wow, do they have they really accepted this? Because it certainly sounds like they have, and it they repeat the facts so quickly after they're said that there is this kind of lockstep. It's not even a question; it's more like I'm just expressing this idea of these people desperately want to believe that this is real, and it makes me sad for them. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for. Um, well, I, I try to be compassionate to everybody, but uh, some <laughs> compassion. But and 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 I limited and, amounts know, of I mean, compassion. The the true believers are are what drive politics. So I spend a lot of time trying to understand what people believe and why, and what drives them to care about participating in the political system when it's so thankless and um, mostly run by you know retirees and students because those are the only people who are free to go to things in the middle of the day. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I it, it, it's interesting how attached people are. It, it, and it is interesting too, I think the rise of a, rev, of a, of, this is sort of what you're saying, the a Republican party that is change oriented, that is revolutionary, that wants to overturn the system when Republicans have previously been the small C conservative party, right? The sort of Burkean conservative party that says like, let's just be skeptical of utopian liberal social engineering plans. Let's move slowly, uh, hand in hand and, uh, and, and, and let's, you know, keep the status quo as much as possible. And it, it, it really seems like there's a desire to go back to a bygone status quo. And that, would constitute change, but not change in the sense that like progressives mean, right? So, I mean, one one interesting debate I've been having with a a conservative friend of mine is 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 whether 
Trump really would shake up Washington, right? Would he really, given what we know about how he's run his business and his campaign, would he actually drain the swamp? Do we really think that there would not be cronyism in a potential Trump White House that he would not have? Maybe he would have an, an even even uh, more uh, sort of loathsome set of hangers-on and lobbyists around him, but it's hard to imagine that he would not have, right? That, that the sort of people who currently grease the wheels in D.C. would somehow not have an entree. So... Um, so that's the other th- uh, thing that's odd about it. Because fundamentally, he seems kind of lazy. Like, he is the busiest lazy person ever. <laughs> I don't know. But I think he works very, very, very hard, um, actually. And you hear that he only sleeps a few hours a night. And uh, by the way, he has tremendous stamina. Uh, <laughs> he does. Just ask him. Just ask him. But but what he doesn't seem to have is a great deal of focus. And uh, so... Um, so I don't think he's lazy in the sense that he just sort of sits around putting things off the way I do. Um, but, uh, but he, but he doesn't, um, put a lot of sustained effort into things. He doesn't do the work part. I think he sounds like he does a lot of the, um, watching TV and angry tweeting and, you know, just, it's basically, I'm like, wow, he spends his day like me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh man, I'm so sorry, Dan. Take the wheel because I just said I just said a bad thing. <laughs> you just empathized. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that that he does not have a lot of focus. Uh, obviously, earlier in this conversation, you said you know this is it, right? This is the last two weeks. This is this is game time. So, what are you focusing on for for this final final run? Yeah, do you think, do you have any ideas on who will win? Um, I don't make predictions, but uh, the, the, the polls are usually right. This mm. whole dialogue about people questioning the polls or saying, oh, anything can happen because it's been so surprising. Actually, this has been one of the least surprising campaigns uh, in terms of outcomes that I've ever seen. One candidate led the primaries on both sides from start to finish. And that candidate won the Democratic primary and won the Republican primary. One candidate has led the general election polling since the conventions, if not earlier. Uh, and so it is not the case that that candidates have been somehow defying the polls. I mean, maybe on a micro level, there's a an odd result here and there, but uh, th- th- Hillary Clinton is enjoying one of the most consistent and sustained and increasing national polling leads uh, in in recent memory, if not in modern history. So, um, you know, a lot of the questions that we political nerds are asking are about: Can Democrats take back the Senate? Could they? Could the House even be in play? That is what a lot of my Republican sources are now freaking out about, and they're concerned that. Uh, they're pretty. They've written off Donald Trump, but they worry that his, his um, constant series of explosions uh, is going to further depress the Republican vote down the ticket. I I wonder if you know a lot of registered Republican or conservative leaning independent voters don't just decide to stay home because they don't see anything worth coming out for. So and that combined with the fact that Hillary Clinton does have this massive, robust field operation and Trump does not, 
could could make the results quite lopsided. Now, a lot can still happen, but a lot of people have voted already. And I think uh, in a lot of states, more than half of the electorate will have already been tallied by the time Election Day rolls around because of all the early voting. This this thing is already partly over. <laughs> wow. That's a beautiful sentence. <laughs> I mean, it's sad for you. It's sad for you, although I hope you get to go on a vacation or something. I actually want to spend some time at home. I that don't want to go great. anywhere. I've spent so much time in airports, so much time in Hampton Inns all over the country, and haven't seen my kids much, haven't seen my husband much, haven't been able to enjoy the fruits of my mortgage. Uh, and as you know, when you take a vacation with kids, it's not a vacation. So <laughs> I really just want to be home for a while. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Well, you're home now. Thank you. You literally just got off a plane from uh, from the debate. Thank you for spending uh, a little bit of that, that home time with us. Uh, Molly Ball is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, check out her work and good luck these last these last uh, 20-ish days. Thank you very much. Courage. That's it for this episode of Says Who. After two episodes this week, and thanks everyone for your awesome reactions to the minicast. It was a fun experiment. We're glad you liked it. We'll be back on our regular once-a-week schedule. So join us again on Wednesday, October 26th, when we'll be joined by Olivia Nutsey of The Daily Beast to help us get a grip on the last two weeks of the campaign. Are we really two weeks out? Not quite yet. But we are under 20 days, and by the time the next episode is out, we'll be under two weeks. So, in the rational part of my brain, I'm thinking, under 20 days? That's no time. I've gone longer between laundry. But then that animal instinct part of my brain kicks in, and it just says, get out, get out now while there's still time. This is kind of a tough balance right now. Yeah, but there's no getting out for us. Sorry, animal brain. We're in this until the bitter, awful, contested election end. It's true. So thanks, everyone, for listening, for dropping us lines, and for telling your friends about us. It is amazing. We started this podcast on mostly a whim as just a way for the two of us to really deal with this election. And now here you all are coping along with us. Thank you. Absolutely. It means a lot. And if you like what you hear, if you could leave a comment on iTunes or spread the word to your friends on Facebook or Twitter or just like anywhere that you see people, that would be great. It helps immensely. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at Says Who Podcast, Facebook at slash Says Who Podcast, the plain old Internet at Says Who Podcast dot com. And you can even send emails to hey at Says Who Podcast dot com. The Ghost of Future Debates was played by Mark Evan Jackson. Mark can be seen and heard in such places as Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Kung, Skull Island, and the Thrilling Adventure Hour. He's the co-founder of the Detroit Creativity Project, a nonprofit that offers confidence-building, imagination-stimulating, life-improving improv instruction in middle and high schools in Detroit. You can learn more about it at DetroitCreativityProject.org. Our theme music is performed by Ted Leo, who has tour dates for November up now at tedleotour.tumblr.com. The Says Who logo was made by the one and only Darth. That's, yay, Darth! Yay, that's at Darth on Twitter. From my basement in Chicago, I'm Dan Sinker. 
And from my new closet in New York, I'm Maureen Johnson. New closet? Yeah. Yeah, Dan, things have been going so well with the podcast Man. that I upgraded from my bedroom closet to my office closet. So how is just a move from one closet to another an upgrade? Well, for the first episodes, I pulled all of my clothes out of my bedroom closet and I dumped them around the bedroom. And then I had to drag all that weird crap out of the bottom of my closet because I live in New York and everything I own has to go in one or two closets. And then I had to shove a dining room chair in there and a table I took from the living room. And then I had to shove my clothes back in for soundproofing. And then I would shut myself in in the dark. But now I'm in the office closet, and I dragged everything out of this closet, too, and then I covered it in soundproofing tiles, but they weren't enough, and they keep falling off the ceiling and onto my head, so I had to shove stuff back into this closet as well to muffle the noise, and now I'm recording while crouched under a yoga mat, but it feels much classier, and if we get more listeners, I'm going to add more sound tiles, and for every review, I will add a sound tile. Did you get a light? No, it is still very dark in here. Well, either way, a brand new closet... No more debates. A number of days left in this never-ending election that is actually countable on fingers and toes. Plus, let's not forget that you trapped a ghost. Maureen, I am starting to feel like maybe things are looking up. Yeah, it does feel like maybe after all this darkness, there's a little glimmer of something. I don't know. Let's call it hope. Hopish? I'll take it. I will take it. It's pie time. Dan, it's probably not healthy to treat every single emotion with pie. Oh, yeah? Says who? You're the puppet. You're the puppet. You're the puppet. You're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. You're the puppet. You're the puppet. No, you are. No, wrong. No. Wrong. No, you are. Wrong. You're Kermit the Frog. Wrong. You're Miss Wrong. You're Fozzie the Bear. You're those, you're those two old guys up in the balcony. Oh, you're the sweetest chef. Okay, that's fine. I'm fine with that. I'll be that puppet. Smurr de bird de birdie.